In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O God, for this day. We ask your blessing in everything that we do. Be with us, O Lord, this evening and guide us and guide all of the church. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us as they are daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Um, God willing, everyone is doing well. Um, tonight, we're going to have another session of our Q&A. If you would like to submit any questions for the Q&A, you can do so uh, using the link um, on your screen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. First question we have today is, how can we teach our kids the concept of being set apart and not being of the world from a young age? And how can we support them as they go through peer pressure? This is actually one of the most important things that we can instill in a child from a young age is the concept of our identity as children of God. The idea that our identity comes from God and that the way we see ourselves and the way we see the world is through the lens of our faith and not through the lens of the secular world the atheist world, the materialistic world, the godless world, right? That, that we see ourselves as children of God from a young age. And when this is a calling that, that requires us to live a certain way for a certain reason that we are living that way, that we understand that we were created by God. We understand that God loved us from the beginning. We understand that the, the corruption and the evil and all of the problems that we see in this world are not because um, it, 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 that it happened randomly or that or that God created it this way, but we are actually the fault of the, the corruption that is in the world through our sin, and that God has redeemed us to himself so that we do not have to be victims of the sinful world that we are living in, and that ultimately we have a better place that God is preparing for us for us to go, right? We, we were bought at a price by the Lord, and that our goal should be a life and a union with God, and that God is saving us from this destruction, this, this the corruption that is in the world today, right? If, if we emphasize to each person, to each child when they're young, this concept, and so that each person believes this sincerely and wholeheartedly, it will protect them from the many of the negative uh, influences that are in the world. Certainly there will be temptation and certainly there will be fall, but, but there will also be repentance. There will always be someone who maybe for a time will fall away, but then will come back again because they have it's been instilled in them who they are. And even though maybe because of our weakness, when we are tempted, we fall away, we follow after um, our lusts, we follow after our pleasures, we, we follow after novel ideas and things that we maybe are deceived for a time to try, but we will always remember and come back again to the foundation of what we have been taught. And this teaching should be in many, in many forms right? This teaching should be, um, of course, in, in the direct teaching, like where we are being taught by God when we read the Bible and we listen to sermons when we attend Sunday school. And, you know, it should be um, also a teaching by, uh, by, by modeling, you know, when, when children see their parents uh, and, and um, the, the, the leaders in their life uh, living this and really seeing themselves in this way as well, then it helps them to understand their responsibilities and their place in life and what is it that they should be doing um, uh, both as, as youth and as they get older. Um, also, we need to be very uh, direct and clear and open and transparent with kids and, 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 and understand and, and talk to them about the real world pressures that they face. You know, one thing that always happens is older generation you know, they kind of remember how things were when they were kids in their environment and, and don't realize that maybe in the current generation, things are different, right? Different in whichever way, oftentimes worse, right? Like um, oftentimes, like, you know, when we think about the current time, maybe people grew up that the internet didn't even exist, right? When they were kids. And now you see um, all of the, the, the temptations that there are on the internet. So, so just as a, as a small example, right? We have to be, as adults, we have to be aware of the world that our kids are living in because the world that our kids live in is not the same world that we live in, right? It's not the same world that we lived in as kids and it's not the same world that we live in today. 
the people that we see, the things that we talk about, you know, all those things are things that, you know, we need to understand them. We need to see, listen to them. We need to make them feel comfortable to talk to us about their struggles, about their temptations, without making them feel like if they say something that they're going to get in trouble. Um, and so they just stay, stay quiet and keep secrets, right? Because we want to guide them through this process, um, acknowledging the real temptations that they face, right? Because they face, like children in our society today, they face extreme, extreme pressure an extreme temptation all around from every place um, that is telling them that God is not real, that is telling them that they should not live their faith, that's making them feel um, like, like, you know, insulted for their faith, that mocked for who they, for who they are and what they believe. So we have to be open and, and speaking about these topics from a very young age, always having our kids to be in the church from a very young age, involved in every possible way that we can, that the church becomes the center of life. You know, one thing that um, you know, like, like when it comes to our faith, we can be faithful and we can say, you know, I, I, I go to church on Sunday and going to church on Sunday is my expression of worship and faith. And that's fine. That's good. Okay. But to really be um, like, if, if my activities, if my use of my time is really a reflection of the importance that our faith should be to us of, of how, uh, much we 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 focus on our faith and our spiritual life relative to all the other priorities and all of the other important things in our life. And we need to be in church a lot, you know, not not just once a week. Even we need to we need to be there much more often. We need to attend Bible studies. We need to attend social events. We need to attend vespers. We need to we need to serve. We need to be in the church like completely in the church because this is the place of salvation. This is a place of safety. If we look around in the world and we see everything is corrupt, then we go to the church for a safe haven from that corruption, the place where we are saved and the place that we want our children to be saved and to be planted in it so that as they grow, they are growing in the nurturing, protective space um, that is the church. So the way that we live, the things we talk about, the being open and, and speaking to them openly about the pressures that we're facing, raising them in the church and participating in the church, serving in the church, letting the church be the center of our life and not just something that I do on Sunday. No, it is the center of our life. Everything else should revolve around that and not vice versa. Number two, in Luke 8, 19, the Bible says, then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. Now I know that our church believes in the ever virginity of St. Mary, which means that our Lord Jesus had no brothers. What does the term brothers mean in that verse then? So the term brothers, right? The word that is translated brothers here, the word is Adelphos, okay? And this word uh, Adelphos can mean brother. It can also mean a close relative. It can actually mean a fellow believer or a fellow countryman. All those things can be meant by this word Adelphos, right? So uh, we in the church, we believe that this verse is referring to those who are his cousins and not directly to his brothers, okay? Um, another example of this is in Genesis chapter 13, verse 8, when um, the Bible is speaking about the relationship between Abraham and Lot, okay? So Abraham was Lot's uncle, right? So Lot was his nephew of Abraham. We know this for, for sure. It's very clear. But in this verse, Genesis 13, 8, it refers to uh, the relationship between Lot and Abraham as being brothers, right? And it's that same, the same word, the same meaning. The idea that this is a generic word that can mean literally like a blood brother or it can mean some other um, relationship um, that, that is like a, of a relationship of faith, uh, sharing a common faith or another close relative and so on. Um, also, if you look at what happened um, when Christ was on the cross, he was dying on the cross, and St. John the Beloved and St. Mary were there, um, Christ speaks to uh, both of them, and he gives St. Mary to be uh, kind of like uh, that St. John would be responsible for her, like she would go and live with him and so on. So if she had other sons, okay, um, then they would have been the ones to take care of her. You know, if she had other sons, then they would have taken care of her. Um, and, and, and Christ would not have said to St. John, the beloved, that he is the one to take care of her. 
right? But because she didn't have any other sons and she and her husband Joseph had died already, so there was no one else there to take care of her. So this is why uh, Christ asked Saint John. So again, if, if if he had other brothers, then they would have been the ones to do so. Um, so that that's that's the explanation of that term, brothers. Um, in the story of Jonah, did he actually die in the belly of the fish, and was restored to life, as he says, out of the belly of Sheol, which is explained as a waiting place for the souls. So um, Jonah did not actually die in the belly of the fish. It was a metaphorical death. The idea that um, he, he was swallowed up by this fish and that the fish went deep down um, into, the, into the ocean, that it was like a metaphor for being in Hades or Sheol, right? Sheol is, is, a, is another word that was used in the Old Testament for Hades, and it was always depicted as being a deep pit. In Psalm 86, 13, it says, For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, right? Here the psalmist is praying this. Christ also compared Jonah being in the belly of the fish to himself being in the tomb for three days when he was speaking to the people before his crucifixion. He said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, right? So during this time um, after Christ died, before he rose from the dead on the third day, right? We believe that the Lord went into Hades and he freed the righteous people there and brought them up to paradise, okay? So um, uh, just as when Christ is speaking about this, the idea of being in the heart of the earth, right? A deep place in the earth, Hades, Christ is likening this to what happened with Jonah, that he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So in that sense, Jonah was metaphorically like, like in Sheol, like the fish was like Sheol for him. And he considered himself to be as good as dead because obviously anyone who is, is going to be swallowed by a fish like this, you would expect them to die, right? But Jonah did not actually die. God, God saved him. And, and, and essentially he, he allowed him to be swallowed by the fish, not only to teach him a lesson, but actually to transport him back from where he was to the place that he was supposed to go to preach to the Ninevites. Number four, why is there a difference between the Psalms numbers in the Agbeya and in the Bible? Um, so the, the Bible um, comes in many different translations, okay? The translations that we typically use, um, you know, in most places um, in the church, we, we typically use the New King James Version, okay? The New King James Version, um, the Old Testament of, of that, it is not the same uh, source as the, the, the translation of the Psalms and the Egbeya. It's different. Okay, how are they different or how did it come about? So in the Old Testament, all the various writers and prophets who wrote their books, they wrote them in the Hebrew language. Okay, and these Hebrew books were recorded and that is what was consisted of the Jewish scripture. So that is what the Jewish people read as their scripture. Okay. Um, a, a few hundred years before the coming of Christ, uh, the, the Greek language had become uh, very well known um, all over the world at the time. And so Ptolemy, the king of Egypt at the time, he commissioned 70 rabbis to translate these Hebrew uh, scriptures to the Greek language. Okay. And this was so that it would be accessible to more people. So it wasn't just uh, readable by the Hebrews who knew the Hebrew language, but it could be read by a larger audience of people from all over the world. And so these 70 rabbis, they translated these Hebrew scripture into Greek, okay? Um, as time passed, the original Hebrew scriptures um, became lost in the sense that um, it, the, 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 the way that those scriptures would be interpreted was passed down from generation to generation by oral tradition. And the way they were written down was not written down in a very clear, straightforward way. So in order to really understand uh, what the scriptures were saying, you had to have this additional uh, information that had been passed down from generation to generation through the, by, by, by the Jewish people. Over time, this uh, tradition was lost, okay? 
Fast forward now, about a thousand years later, there was a group of Jews called the Masoretes, and these Jews wanted to revive um, and reform the, the, the Hebrew scriptures so that it could be read more easily by the people. Okay, so they worked to try to piece together what was um, from the original Hebrew scriptures, um, but it required a lot of interpretation, it required some assumptions, um, because that oral tradition that, that explained how to read it and understand it had been lost. So they, they came up with, an, with, with kind of an updated Hebrew version, okay, which is called the Masoretic Text. The New King James Version that we have now, which I believe it was, it was translated in the 17th century, the King James Bible, um, at least the original King James, um, uh, the, the, this English version was translated from this Masoretic text, okay? So the original Hebrew, even though this Masoretic text is Hebrew, it is not the original Hebrew, okay? It is, a, it is an updated best effort Hebrew, okay? So when you look at what is the most kind of ancient translation that we have that is closest to the original, the answer is really the Septuagint translation, which was written in Greek in which we have um, extant uh, now. So there is Bibles translated to English from this Septuagint version, okay? So the Septuagint version um, is what is used in the translation of the Agbeya. Really, the Septuagint version as a church as a whole um, is, is more accurate than this Masoretic text version. Um, but for, for practical reasons, the fact that all of the Bibles that are, have been available for such a long time have been Protestant Bibles, we've all become accustomed to reading um, the various Protestant translations, specifically the New King James Version of the Old Testament. If you get the Orthodox Study Bible, um, which is published by the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Old Testament there is a, an English translation of the Septuagint, okay? And you'll find that there's variations and differences from the New King James. Of course, there's nothing there that's gonna, you know, fundamentally change the faith or, or anything like that, but it is it is not exactly the same. So um, the, the Ekbeya, uh, uses the Psalms from that. One of the differences between the two versions is the numbering of the Psalms. So um, the, the it, some Psalms are combined together, some Psalms are divided, so the numberings um, uh, do not all match. The first 150 Psalms are all the same in the sense that they, they all 150 Psalms exist, but some places they might be off by one or off by two or the same. Um, the, the only other difference in the Psalms is that in the Septuagint version, there is a 151st Psalm, um, which we have actually um, in, in our Bible, like the Coptic reader has 151 Psalms in the Bible. Um, the 151st one is from the Septuagint translation, whereas the New King James does not. So um, you might see sometimes the notation after the, 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 the name of a Psalm, you might see LXX. LXX is Roman numerals for 70. And the number 70 is referring to the, those 70 rabbis. That's actually where you get the name Septuagint, right? From the number 70, uh, the 70 rabbis that translated the original Hebrew scripture into Greek. So um, that's why you'll see. Anytime you see a Psalm numbering, um, you just be aware of, is this, is this New King James numbering or like Protestant numbering, or is it Septuagint numbering? And, and all the ones in the Igbeya are Septuagint numbering, and all the ones in the Bible um, are the New King James number. Number five, what is Vespers and why do we only pray it before Sunday liturgy and not before every liturgy? So Vespers is a prayer that is called a raising of incense. That is the, that is the type of prayer. And there's another one just like it called Matins, right? So if you come early in the morning before the liturgy starts, um, uh, at the, the very first thing that we pray on a Sunday morning is matins, which is raising of incense. And then the Vespers is prayed the night before. It's also a raising of incense. The two services are almost identical um, in the way that they are prayed. Okay. Um, the, the, this can be prayed any day, actually. This, like matins and Vespers, these are separate services. You could pray them by themselves without even there being a liturgy. Um, and you can have a liturgy. Um, liturgies must have matins in the morning, but don't necessarily have to have vespers the previous night. 
but as a, as a matter of practice that we have at least one Vespers every week and that is Saturday night before the liturgy on Sunday. Um, during uh, certain periods of times, like during St. Mary's fast, for instance, which is about two weeks long, uh, many churches that have St. Mary's revivals, they'll, play, they'll pray a Vespers every single day, okay? So we can ask the question is, why should we attend Vespers, okay? So one of the things that prevents us from fully benefiting from the liturgy is coming late and not being prepared, right? So the raising of incense, um, which again, will take place before the beginning of the liturgy um, and the night before, it like prepares us for the arrival of the king, kind of like the, the, the raising of incense represents the Old Testament, okay? This is actually why all the prayers that we pray in the raising of incense are prayed outside of the altar. The priest is outside of the altar praying. The deacon also that is praying in the, with the sanctuary is actually praying outside of the altar because it represents the Old Testament as though like we have not yet fully entered into the Holy of Holies, okay? Um, so uh, it is a preparation for uh, the coming of the king. This is actually also why in matins, um, whenever the bishop is going to come and pray liturgy, he does not attend matins. This is actually not because he comes late. This is because it's actually part of the ritual, the rite uh, of matins, that because matins represents the Old Testament and the bishop represents the Lord Christ, the Lord Christ came after the Old Testament. He was he came at the time of the New Testament, right? So so the, the, the matins is prayed without the presence of the bishop, and then the bishop arrives, okay? So this service prepares us um, uh, through a couple ways. One is we read the Holy Gospel and the Psalms, and, or, or, or uh, the two key ways that um, the, the divine liturgy helps us to receive the Lord is through the word of God um, and also through the Eucharist, right? So in attending the raising of incense, we strengthen our relationship with God through his prayers and we understand like that we are waiting for the Lord, like we are in expectation of the Lord to come, okay? Um, where we see actually in the Holy Scriptures, we see many different examples of the raising of incense, all right? Um, and the rites of uh, a lot of the church prayers, right, um, are based on what we find in the Scriptures. So in the Old Testament, the Jews were allowed to offer incense in the temple, only in the temple, right? Um, and, and But the use of incense in the New Testament fulfills a prophecy in the book of Malachi. Uh, when God said in Malachi 1.11, uh, he, he spoke through the prophet Malachi. He said, for from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations. So in the Old Testament, you could not offer incense except in the temple. But this prophecy in the book of Malachi, it says that incense will be offered uh, in every place, right? In, in, in everywhere, right? Incense shall be offered, which is a prophecy of the church. Because in the church, obviously, um, all over the world, we are offering incense. So it's showing how, like, like we are still offering incense, even though in the New Testament, um, just as they were offering also in the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot of symbols to the incense. Um since the incense can represent like our prayers writing, rising up to God, um, the censer can represent the virgin's womb because um, she had the Lord in her womb and the incense itself can represent uh, the Lord Christ uh, and his incarnation and his humanity and his divinity. Um, so there's a lot of spiritual benefits that we get by um, attending the raising of incense um, and all of its symbols and understanding it and it prepares us for um, the liturgy and, and, and symbolically for the coming of the Lord. The earlier that we arrive, um, whether it be in matins or that we attend as well in Vespers the night before, the more we are preparing ourselves to consider that the liturgy is like a very sacred and holy time, that we are coming to attend it with the right mindset and focus so that we don't just kind of come while our minds are distracted and we're not really focusing and we don't benefit as much um, as we could from the liturgy. So. Um, the, the, the raising of incense prayer, whether it be in the morning or the night before, is, is an important one that we should get into the habit of attending um, every week. There is an icon that I found online of a saint called St. Paul the Simple holding a rock on his head. Is this the same as Abba Paul the First Hermit? Also, what is the story of that icon? 
So St. Paul the Simple, he is not um, the same as St. Paul the Hermit. Uh, his feast day is on the 18th of Amshir. And actually, we, we read his story on his feast day in the Synaxarian. Okay? He was a contemporary of St. Paul the Hermit. Um, he, was, he was alive at the same time. St. Paul the Simple was um, one of the disciples of St. Anthony, who was living around at the same time as St. Paul the Hermit. Um, what is his story? So he was a married man originally, um, and he was caught. Uh, he caught his wife having an affair with another man. And so he left his house and he decided to go and become a disciple of St. Anthony in the desert. Um, he was an older man at the time. So St. Anthony was reluctant to accept him um, because of his old age. But he like tested him to see whether he would be able to accept the ascetic life in the desert. And he found that, yes, he would be able to accept it. And he accepted him as his disciple. He was a very simple man, and God granted him the gift of casting out of evil spirits. So one day, um, there was a person who had this, uh, this young man who had this uh, very powerful evil spirit on him, and they brought this uh, young man to St. Anthony. So St. Anthony looked at the man, um, and he said, uh, he said this. He said, this is not a task for me. I have not yet been given the grace to deal with this very powerful type of demon. Paul the Simple has the gift of dealing with this one. So he instructed them to take the young man who was demon-possessed to uh, St. Paul the Simple in order to cast out the demon, okay? Um, St. Paul uh, kept asking St. Anthony to do it, but St. Anthony refused. Um, and so the boy was left with St. Paul to exercise the demon. Um, and so St. Paul, when he began to pray, again, he was a very simple, very humble man. When he began to pray, he, he said what? He said, Abba Anthony says, depart from this man, right? It's like he didn't even want to, to show that somehow it was because of his own righteousness or his own goodness or some gift that he had that he would be able to exercise this demon and, and, and St. Anthony could not. This is how simple and, and, and humble he was. So when he prayed, he prayed invoking the name of St. Anthony so that if this man is cured of his um, his demon possession, then he could say that it was through the blessing and the prayers of St. Anthony that it happened. So when when St. Paul prayed this, he said, Abba Anthony says, depart from this man. Then the demon actually, and the man responded. He said, I will not, you disgusting, pompous old man. This is what the demon said. So St. Paul continued in his prayers and the demon continued to curse him and to curse St. Anthony. And, um, and so... Uh, finally, St. Paul, he said to him, what, well, either go now or I will call upon the power of Christ to bring destruction upon you. But again, the demon was stubborn and he refused to go and kept cursing. So St. Paul decided that he was going to go outside. Okay. And he stood up like a statue, like straight up like a statue. And he stood up on top of a rock and he took this other rock and he held it up over his head. And he prayed and he said, Jesus Christ, you who were crucified under Pontius Pilate, take note that I will not come down from this rock, nor will I eat or drink even if I die, until you hear me and cast out this demon from this man and liberate him from the unclean spirit. So he's like telling God, I'm going to stay in this position, holding this rock and standing in this place that I am until you answer my prayer and you cast away this demon from this man. So even as he was praying and before he had even finished the prayer, the demon cried out and he said, I'm going driven out by force, overcome by tyranny. I'm getting out of this man and won't come back anymore. So it was like the simple mind, the simple faith, the simple prayer of this man, St. Paul the Simple, that um, asking the Lord to uh, to heal this man, to cast out this demon, um, this, this, is the, this is the one that... Um, this is how this this boy this boy was healed, um, and and the, the the demon even said this. He said, "It is the simplicity and humility of Paul which has driven me out, and I don't know where to go." So God honored him um, for his simplicity, and this is why we have this icon with him holding a rock um, over his head. Number seven. If someone committed a sin in the past, but told their parents about it and truly repents and never repeats it again with the grace of God, can he confess it silently during confession? So the idea here is when we 
um, when we commit a sin, the Bible says that we should confess our sin and actually says we should confess our sins to one another. So there are certain sins um, that it is appropriate for me to um, discuss it with certain people, for instance, like here in the case of speaking about parents, like if a person who is um, a child who has you know done something wrong, they can go and confess that they committed this sin and this mistake to their parents. And the parents' role is to guide them and to teach them the way that they should go. Okay, so that is a very good thing to do. Okay, and this person is repentant and he's apologizing and he's confessing the sin. But when confessing the sin to the priest, the, the, the priest is not like anyone else, right? Even though, yes, the priest is there for spiritual guidance, um, to, to help direct the person, to help motivate and encourage them not to sin again, to, to warn them about the pitfalls maybe of some of the decisions they're making or where they're going or to tell them to stay away from bad influences so they don't fall into sin. All those things are true about the father of confession in, in, a, in, a, in kind of the respects of guidance, okay? But, but the, the gift of the priesthood is more than just guidance. It's more than just, um, you know, support and encouragement, okay? The gift of the priesthood entails the absolution of sin, right? This was established by Christ when he blew into the face of the disciples and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is in John 20, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. In this manner, the Lord actually imparted the Holy Spirit to the apostles. This is before the Pentecost, right? The Pentecost has not happened yet. We know that on the day of Pentecost, all the believers received the Holy Spirit as tons of fire. And this was the seal of salvation. This was for the purpose of salvation. This is the sacrament of salvation that we all receive, okay, after baptism. But prior to this, there was the special gift of the Holy Spirit that was not given like the one of Pentecost, which was for salvation, this one was for the gift of the priesthood, of what are some of the things that make the priest different than just any person? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. It's also said in another gospel that whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. This is, again, given to the apostles, this gift of the priesthood. What does this mean? It means that the Lord gives the priest the authority that whatever they declare in a spiritual sense to be true on earth, that God honors it, right? Like whatever they declare to be for a certain person, God honors this. So if the priest says to a specific person, your sins are forgiven, then indeed they are forgiven, okay? So this is not the same as I'm going to just go tell someone and confess my sin and tell them, look at this thing that I did wrong. Even though that is a good thing, and even though that is a sign of a true repentant person, but it is not the same thing as actually going to priests and confessing the sin to them, because they have this unique power whom God himself gave them, right? Um, this is similar to the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, um, there was the disease of leprosy, and the disease of leprosy would come to those who had committed some kind of a sin, okay? So the Lord was speaking to the people and he told them whenever someone um, gets something on their skin that looks like it could be leprosy, what should you do? You should go to the priest and he will declare whether this is actually leprosy or not. Okay. And if it is leprosy, he would give them some kind of discipline. Like you have to stay outside of the camp of the people for a certain period of time. Um, and then, you know, once the leprosy is gone, then you could return. And once the leprosy is gone, they would come back to the priest and he would declare that the leprosy is gone, right? So just as in the Old Testament, the priest had a role for kind of declaring that the person was healed of this leprosy or healed of this sin or forgiven of the sin, that the consequence of sin had been lifted, right? So also in the New Testament, the priest has the role for the forgiveness of sin. Now, it doesn't mean that the priest is actually the one forgiving, right? Well, that's why we say it is an absolution. The priest prays the absolution prayer, which is declaring that God has forgiven the sin to the person. This is more than just a psychological benefit, right? Of course, we know there is a psychological benefit to going some, to a person and saying, God has forgiven you. And here is a prayer declaring God's forgiveness to you. Of course, there is a psychological benefit to us for, for going through that process. Actually, many people go to counselors, 
Many people talk about their failures and their mistakes to get encouragement from others. But again, the, 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 the spiritual gift given in the, in, to the priesthood is more than just psychological benefit. It is truly a spiritual work of, of, of loosing the sin such that it is no longer counted by God. So this is no longer um, on their account that God forgets it. Okay. And, you know, you can go through all kinds of exceptional cases, like what happens if somebody commits a sin and then doesn't have a chance to commit to con confess it and then they die and what happens to them. God is not legalistic. Okay. Uh, God can forgive any sin he wants, but this is the prescription that he has given to us. Okay. As the church through the normal means for the normal people and in, in normal situations by which that we are forgiven of sin. So it is very important that we first repent of sin. And then it is also very important that we go and have a father of confession and um, uh, confess the sin to him. Number eight. I know that the prophet Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Does that mean that he was depressed or that he didn't have the joy of the Lord in his heart? So why do we call him the weeping prophet? So who is Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a prophet who lived in Judah, uh, which was the southern kingdom. Um, this is the, the time where Israel had been, was divided, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Um, and because of the sins of the people, God would always be warning them for many generations, okay, um, that, that he would bring them to destruction, that he would bring them into exile, that he would allow the enemies of Israel to conquer them. And, you know, the people continued in their sin. They continued worshiping idols. They continued, like, in all these bad things that, that the surrounding nations were doing that they kind of learned from them. They were practicing it. And so God would send them prophets to warn them and to tell them that, you know, that the, the destruction is coming. Change your ways. Destruction is coming. So Jeremiah was one of these prophets, okay? And his role was always to warn and to rebuke the people and to tell them that they have to change their ways, to tell them that, um, all these destructive things are going to happen to them. Uh, ultimately, it happened. Ultimately, um, the King Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon. He came and he conquered uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and he brought the people into exile. Okay. So he, number one, his message was kind of always a sad message. Like it was always a message bringing uh, a word of destruction. Okay. Um, also, he was largely hated for his message because he, he he always brought the same message and the people didn't want to hear it they didn't they wanted to close their ears they didn't want to hear they wanted to continue living as they were and they didn't want to think that such a thing would be possible and they believed that god could never do this to them we are the chosen people of god god could never do this to us okay um very similar to kind of maybe the attitude we have nowadays is everyone just closes their ears closes in like any words of wisdom no we're just going to continue living as we are um, and we don't want to, to hear or listen, okay, to any wisdom. Also, he was always mourning. He was mourning for his people because he knew that unless they repented, that they would be destroyed. And they were very hard of heart, and they didn't want to uh, listen, and he didn't want them to be destroyed. We read actually in, in Jeremiah 13, it says, Hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains, and while you are looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. But if you will not hear, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. So not only was his message kind of a, a, a sad message of rebuke, not only was he hated, but he was mourning for his people. He was mourning genuinely and sincerely for them, both before they were destroyed and also after they were destroyed. He wrote the book of Lamentations, which is the other book in the Bible that the Jer prophet uh, Jeremiah wrote. And actually, we read from this uh, uh, prophecy of Lamentations. We read it on Good Friday, right? The whole chapter is lamenting um, with sadness and mourning what happened to uh, the, the, the kingdom, okay, after its destruction after its exile, okay? So his weeping in all of this was not personal depression, right? It wasn't that he didn't have the joy of the Lord in his heart. He was mourning for the sake of others, right? Um, he, was, he was mourning because he wanted to see the salvation of the people, 
right? And he was mourning because um, his message was always this sorrowful message. So even the, so, Jeremiah the prophet, he was a great prophet and he believed in the Lord, but his commission that God sent him to do was a difficult one. Um, and, and, and sadly, um, the people did not listen to him. And so he saw the destruction of the people and this caused him sorrow. And that's why we call him the weeping prophet. Uh, number nine, what does the verse in 1 Corinthians 9, 27 mean? So here, this verse, it, mean, it says what? But I discipline my body. This is St. Paul speaking to the Corinthians. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached the other, to others, I myself should become disqualified. So what is he speaking about? This passage um, in the Bible, he's speaking about the spiritual struggle, and he's presenting it as though it is a race, right? He's saying you have people who are running in a race, like let's say like the Olympics or whatever, um, and in order for someone to, to succeed in this race, you have to be very disciplined, you know? Um, like, like think about someone who uh, is training for the Olympics. The Olympics is every four years. Every single day of their life for that four years, they are training for the Olympics every single day, every single day, they are going to the gym every single day. They are practicing every single day, right? They are running. They are, they are, they are working hard to train for this competition. And for them, this competition is the most important thing. And they sacrifice so much in order to, uh, to, to, to discipline themselves. They, they, they sacrifice so much, like maybe they can't eat all that they want to eat or they can't do all that they want to do or they can't travel all they want to travel or they can't. I mean, I remember there was a story that I heard. Um, it was actually from a monk who was talking about this girl who um, uh, she was competing uh, to be, I don't remember if it was the Olympics or some other competition. And so she was like 16 years old. And so all throughout, it was a very regular thing that her friends would be like going out to have fun, to do something, and they would invite her and she couldn't go because she had to be very strict in the way that she lived. And she used her time in a very disciplined way to increase her chances of having victory. So here, St. Paul is speaking about the self-discipline and bringing our body into subjection. Why? Because we want to win the race. The, ra the race is... Like we want to reach the end. We want to reach the end of our life victoriously, successfully, right? And here we are not racing against one another because, you know, obviously there, it's not like if one person is saved, another person can't be. But we are all trying to get to the finish line. He who endures to the end shall be saved. So we are all trying to run in a disciplined way. And if we don't run in a disciplined way, if we are not focusing on what do I need to do in order to reach to the end, to persevere to the end, then maybe I won't be able to get to the end. You know, maybe maybe this girl, if she had neglected her training and she kept going out with her friends all the time, even if going out with her friends was not wrong in itself, but she just wouldn't be in a condition where she could compete in these, in these games and she could win. So if really winning was her goal, then she had to make certain difficult choices. Everybody wants to win, you know, like everybody wants to win. Everybody wants success. The, the difference is that some people are willing to do what it takes to achieve success and other people are not, right? That's the distinction. Everybody wants success, right? But, but the people who are successful by and large are the people who are willing to put in the work necessary to succeed. So here in, in this verse, he's, he's saying, I am preaching to others that they need to discipline themselves, right? To endure and persevere to the end and to bring my their body into subjection. Subjection means that our body doesn't necessarily and doesn't naturally want to, to, to do these self-discipline things. Like, the, like my body doesn't want, my body wants to sleep. My body wants to relax. My body wants to eat. My body wants to have fun. My body wants pleasure. My body wants all these things that are going against the idea of being in a race, right? Just like, again, the Olympics example, my body is fighting me. It says, I do not want to do this, right? And this is why it requires self-control and discipline. We are disciplining our body and so that we are in control of our body. We are in control of our emotions. We are in control as opposed to those things controlling us, okay? 
So St. Paul, as the one who is preaching all of this to the people, and everywhere that he would go, he is he's preaching this message of discipline. He's preaching this message of, of what, is, what is our role in salvation and what do we need to do? And so he's then looking at himself, right? And, and, and kind of um, similarly, he's asking all of us to look at ourselves, right? He's saying about himself, it's like, well, if, if I'm preaching to you a message of discipline, that you need to be disciplined, bringing your body under subjection, okay? Well, what about me as the preacher, okay? Saying, I also need to discipline myself. I also need to bring my body into subjection, lest when I have preached all of these messages, all of these truth, true messages to the people, I myself have not disciplined myself and I become disqualified that I don't complete the race, okay? So St. Paul was very focused on his own spiritual weaknesses, his own spiritual life, his own discipline, right? Lest he fall and not actually reach the goal that he wanted for himself, even while he is there preaching. This, we see this problem all the time, unfortunately. You know, you see people maybe who are very prominent leaders, um, let's say, you know, in, in different Christian churches, okay? And maybe they start with like um, a, good, a good motive and a good intention, okay? But somewhere along the way, whether it be the deceit of power or influence, that they lose their way, okay, and they they forget their their true calling, and they begin to um, use the opportunities that they have for their own personal gain and their own personal pleasure, rather than for the service of the others, okay. Recently, actually, there was a very sad story of a very very famous Christian man, who was really an inspiration to so many and wrote so many books and went all over the world preaching and, and, and helped convert many people to Christianity. Um, and sadly, it was discovered, um, he died actually last year, it was discovered that um, he, he, he had all kinds of sexual misconduct that he was doing secretly. And people that were close to him uh, dismissed it as, as being all rumors, as being just false accusations, as being whatever it was, because he had such a strong reputation of who he was. And, and, and it reached the point where um, they could no longer um, deny the facts. They were so obvious and they had people come and investigate and even his own family members acknowledged that this was happening. And it was extremely sad story, extremely sad. I mean, I, I personally looked up to this person, um, you know, this was this Christian man. And uh, the idea that someone who could be in a position like that while secretly living another life altogether and, and, and maybe this temptation slowly begins to creep in to someone who is in a position of power where they can get away with it, right? Like, they, like, like people are not going to um, catch him in the act because he has so much influence, okay? Um, so here St. Paul is warning against this. He's saying, it is dangerous to be a teacher. It is dangerous to be in a position of authority. And look how much St. Paul was in a position of authority. I mean, look how much even St. Paul could perform miracles and how God gave him such, such authority. That's why when, um, when St. Paul was speaking about the thorn in his side um, and, and he asked God to remove this thorn in his side, that God said, no, I'm not going to remove it from you because you need to feel your weakness. You can't just feel all the time that you are strong, that everything is fine, you know, and, and you, you need to feel that you are, you are weak. You need to feel like, like, like I'm not just going to relish in my power and my authority. I have to always feel weak because I have been given such honor. I have been given such authority. I've been given such reverence, you know, and respect from others that I cannot just let all this go to my head. Just because I'm an apostle and a teacher and a miracle worker, right? I, I, I am not exempting myself from this discipline. Right. And maybe a person in such a position needs to have all the more discipline. Right. Because now the temptation on them of being able to misuse this authority and power that they have is even higher. So we ourselves, um, anyone who is a servant, who is a leader, who is a teacher, who is teaching others, who is advising others, who was a role model for others, who is a parent, who, 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 who has, you know, a, a younger brother or sister, anyone who is in a position of authority, anyone who is looked up to by somebody else, okay? We have to remember that we have an obligation, not only to ourselves, but to others, 
Okay. I should not just think of myself as a person who is spouting advice and, and, and discipline to others and what you should do and you need to do this and you shouldn't do that. And to forget those same messages should be for myself first of first and, and you know, before anyone else. I should be asking myself, even as I am preaching the truth, and of course, I also have weakness. I who am preaching also have weakness and I also have sin. But to always stay grounded and to always stay repentant and to confess myself, right? The person who continues in their life of confession and repentance is a person who is going to be much more difficult for them to fall into these traps because they are accountable, right? So as long as we remain accountable, right, then maybe some that person who I'm accountable to is going to come and tell me, you're fooling yourself, you're deceiving yourself, you're misusing your power. If St. Paul is teaching self-control but did not control himself, then while he is bringing the words of salvation to others, he might be losing his own salvation, right? So it's very important um, that the devil will find whatever means necessary to destroy the work of God. He will, he, will, he will find any means by which to destroy the work of God. And those people who are the most successful in bringing people to Christ, those people who are the best of teachers and the best of servants and the best of parents and the best of friends and the best, right? Those are in his targets all the more because those are the people that if he destroys them, he brings down a multitude with them. If St. Paul were by in some way fallen into some kind of public sin, right? And it would have become some kind of scandal. Imagine all of the people that would have fallen, all of the people that would have would have looked at that and kind of and left the faith. And 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 sadly, that's what will happen with this person I'm speaking about, right? All the people that believed on his hand, believed because of his preaching, what are they going to say now? People who are fragile in their faith, people who are not yet confirmed in the faith and look at this and say, well, this was all, this was all a farce, right? So those who are teachers, right, have to be disciplined. Those have to continue in a life of repentance and confession and not allow the power and the authority that they have to, to get to their head. Okay. This is a good stopping point for today. So um, we can uh, just uh, conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day and for this time together. We ask, O oh God, that you reveal to us our, our hidden weaknesses, and that while these weaknesses are not something that we will share with everyone around us, let us, let us share it, O oh Lord, with our fathers of confession, that we would repent, O oh Lord, of these sins, and that we would remain accountable for any mistakes that we do. Help us, O oh Lord, to discipline ourselves, to bring our bodies into subjection, to share, O oh Lord, the message of salvation to others while we ourselves are also living it and participating it and benefiting from it. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.